cool. All right, Vocal Fam, we have a very, very special sort of what's going to seem like our season four finale, right, Sarah? I guess it will feel like that. It's going to feel like our season four finale, but but we'll tell you about that at the end. But here we are. We are excited to have Dr. Lynn Helding here. It's going to be great. It's amazing. It's going to be a great day talking about the brain and motor learning (laughs) and all this kind of stuff and her awesome book, The Musician's Mind. But before we like roll into it, let me do this. You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from your semi-occluded vocal tract, have you practiced today? All right, Lynn, welcome to Vocal Fry. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah and Nick. It's so good to be here. <laughs> this the vocal fam, this was one of the two episodes, like I said on Angelica's episode, this was like one of the two episodes that I, I had reached out about prior to the pandemic and then the pandemic happened and pandemic. and yep. last and last May happened. And let's let's admit it, we all remember last May. Well maybe we don't. <laughs> was, was May actually the whole year? <laughs> well, May last May twenty twenty lasted approximately thirty seven years. Ah, I see. I was a little off. <laughs> yeah. Um of, of the thirteen years that twenty twenty was 37 of those 13 years were may um so anyway lynn welcome to vocal fry we're really excited to have you here it's gonna be great oh thank you we are gonna talk about her book the musician's mind Mm -hmm. um for sure because i know that it's been um flying off some shelves uh in terms of uh musicians onto musicians bookshelves this year but lynn first tell us you know Anything about yourself as a singer, a voice teacher, a researcher that kind of would have led you along the career path that kind of got here? So the vocal fam knows who you are. Great. Well, that's, you know, (laughs) you start with, I started out as a child. So how far back do we want to go? Not too far back. (laughs) Wherever you back. Well, I mean, like most people, I sang in high school. And at some point I decided this would be a really cool thing to major in. And I just, I had a lot of success young, uh, very young. I won a lot of major competitions in my teens and early 20s. And so, long story short, I left home, which was Montana, and I went to a very large music school. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, (laughs) And I studied with a very famous teacher. And within really pretty much six weeks, I was leaving my lessons and I couldn't phonate. Oh. And that was really shocking to me because I'd had an excellent teacher. I think I, a lot of people will, um, you know, sort of uh, resonate with this. Your first teacher, sometimes you don't realize, is the best, right? I, I just didn't. I knew she was excellent, but I only after I left and got in trouble did I appreciate how wonderful she had been and given me such a good grounding. But that was partly what gave me the confidence that I could go on and you know, work with other people. And that was sort of my first moment of, wow, how quickly it all came apart. That was really astounding to me. And when I, you know, when I asked this teacher for help, what I got instead was a tongue lashing for, uh, for, you know, saying bad things about their teaching, which of course I, I was trying to figure out what was going on. So in short order, you know, I left that studio, I went to another, wasn't very effective, and I just left school. I just left. 
Um, and fortunately, by then I had met my husband, who got a Fulbright, and so off to Italy we went. Uh, and it was wonderful. As and one I, does. As one does. Uh, but as one does, I took my you know language classes and became. I, I, I never became fluent in Italian, but you know became proficient enough. I sang. It was of course I drank a lot of wine and ate good. Food <laughs> and learned learned all the food vocabulary because okay. I did all the cooking. Yeah, you have to do that, right? The important so, stuff. The important stuff like artichokes and olive oil and things like that. So, uh, but by the time I came back to the States, I just, I felt like I needed to finish. And by that time, Dale Moore had come to the school and uh, Richard Miller had just written his book. So that dates me a little bit because I think his book came out in 86. Yeah, that'd be about right. Yeah. And Dale just said uh, in his wonderful gruff baritone voice, do you know about this book? And I was like, no, didn't know. And he goes, you better go buy it because that's what we're going to do. And I said, great. And I, that was it. I, w- I remember just this book was like Nirvana because it was what I had been looking for, right? Just s- answers to questions. How does this thing work? So how do you put it together? But in my case, how did it fall apart? We're, and talking, then, about struct- we're talking about we're, structure, right? We're talking about structure of singing, yeah. yeah. So how does this instrument fall apart and how do you put it back together? Right, because I knew it wasn't broken. I knew it was just malfunctioning. Um, so that's really when my love affair with voice science started. And and I just you know throughout the years I was always teaching. I was always singing. I was always performing. I had two kids. I was you know pretty busy, but I was always trying to go to summer whatever's like summer yeah. workshops, right? Nats winter workshop. So I did everything there was to do, and by the time I did a vocology institute with Ingo Tietze, there was nothing left. Like I had done, I'd run that gamut, right? And it was there the second summer when I was at SVI and Kitty Vardellini was there, and she just made this offhand comment like, well, you know, knowing, knowing what to train doesn't necessarily translate to knowing how to train it. And I just went, yes. there it is, right? Because I was also right about that time getting really uh, involved with Don Miller and as I know you are, Nick, and um, Paul Keeskin was a really dear friend of mine. Yeah. Um, Ron Headland was an early vocal fryer. In fact, we were, the, we were sort of in this restaurant at one point deciding what to name it. And I think Paul and I had some great name, which I'm completely forgetting. And Don is like, we've got to call it Vocal Friars. And we're like, no, no, it needs to be, you know, I don't know what name we had come up with. But, but I, I miss Don. I do too. But, you know, the thing that was so interesting about Don was I would go to these, you know, early workshops and I would see people be so confused. And then the minute they got confused, they got angry. Yeah. Right? Oh. Yeah. Because people understood it was important, right? Once yeah. you got past the, wow, cool, what do the little squiggly lines mean? <laughs> and then you got into like, how does, how, how do I apply this, right? It's always the how, right? Yeah. But people got stuck on the what, like, what's a format? What does that mean? And then why do I care? And yeah. then how do I use that information for me? How do I teach to other people? This is always the, the root. And I kept seeing this at these conferences. I'd see the scientists on one side and the artists on the other. And I'd see the scientists speaking in what they thought was clear language. 
and I would see the, the singers, the artists, the teachers being very confused and in short order being angry, just yeah. being frustrated and saying, you know, what, what does this mean? How can I use this? Why? And it's, I remember someone turned to me at one of these early conferences. I think it was a, I think it was a, a Voce Vista workshop and said, why do I need to know this? And, you know, instead of the answer in the air at the time was, how dare you ask that question, right? And my thought was, we need to be asking that question, and we'd be, we should be able to answer it, right? We should be able to say, well, you see, <laughs> this acoustic stuff is actually the holy grail that we've all been looking for. It's, it's way cool, but it won't be able to be appropriated by people unless we understand the way people think and the way people learn. And I'm not talking about learning styles. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, speak, finding enough examples or enough metaphors or enough stories that you can tell be, until you can finally get people to go, oh, oh, I get it, right? And we're singers. And if we put that together with these physical experiences that we've had our whole lives, that certain vowels and certain pitches are really great. Like I call that chocolate, right? Mmm, yum, yeah. chocolate, yeah. Right? G5 and sopranos on ah, mmm, chocolate. Yeah. Right? But not so much if you're a baritone. So <laughs> it, it, it's a really, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's true. It's like the worst vowel in the world if you're a baritone. You know, um, I just if I could just pause for just a second. <laughs> I want, I, want, I want you to continue. This is great. But, you know, Sarah, it's almost like two people should consider submitting a proposal of how to learn voice acoustics and strategies for how to learn it or how to teach it for a conference. It's almost it's, like two people should do that. It's on our calendar. We <laughs> scheduled this. Sorry. Anyway, sorry. Back, back yeah. to you. Liz. We should be doing that. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, or form and tuning for dummies, you know, the dummies. Series. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like right. someone it's can make so a killing important. off of that singing for dummies. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of teach my class that way, actually. I do. Um, yeah, we do a pretty extended a segment on acoustics because it is hard, right? I mean, it is hard. Uh, one of my one of my soprano friends says, what? Wait a minute. Is this like physics? <laughs> I said, Yes, well, Deborah, yeah. it is. <laughs> it is. It is. But, you know, we have also Ingo to thank for the inertive reactance oh, my part, gosh. right? That's the piece. You know, I, I hate to see people get so stuck on the physics. I, that's the part that troubles me because they're not going to return to the physiology, right? Yeah. So one of the things I say, I teach my students is when, when, you, when form and tuning works, when you have the best vowel pitch match, it doesn't just sound better, it is better. <laughs> and that's that inertive reactance piece, right? That's yep. the inertance part that makes us understand that there, is, there are real-world consequences for exactly. understanding these theories. So anyway, that's really what led me to the cognitive science part. It was part, you know, kitty through the motor learning, but then it really expanded to just the whole cognitive science piece because as I... You know, as I got thinking about it, this idea of it's not the what, it's the how. Mm -hmm. But right. um, my dear friend Chris Arneson said, yeah, but you can't get a get out of jail free card on the, on the what. 
which is true. Right. So that's another thing I teach my teachers. We still have to understand the what. We have to know the science. But then I've proposed cognitive science as the third pillar because the, it, it, as teachers, we have to not only know the what, but we have to be able to cir circle back right. and get that knowledge in the minds and voices and bodies of our learners. Right. And you just have to have endless patience for how how you do that and how you help people like circle around these really complex ideas. I mean, anybody can learn muscle attachment names, of but course. it takes right. But it takes anybody can memorize where f average format frequencies are. Exactly. I mean, that's just but, memorization. But it's working with it that becomes yeah. right. that kind of right? abstract of it. Well, well, and I'm saying the practical application of it is where things really happen, right? right. When you have a student who's been struggling with this, with this abstract idea, and you go, can you just tweak that a little bit more to an open O? And then their eyes pop out of their head and they go, oh, that's form and tuning. That's it. You just did it, right? Because you can feel when it hooks in and it's that sweet spot. Go talk to our friends who play wind instruments. They've known this for a long time. And they learn it, I think, a little bit more intuitively, maybe, than singers do. I don't know. But, but I think most singers, if you just start with things like, have you ever noticed? <laughs> right? Have you ever noticed that there are some pitches and some vowels that are just beautiful, and then there are others that aren't. And then you just have that discussion from there. And to help them understand, you know, E sucks on a certain note, not because it's tense, <laughs> but because of all kinds of other really interesting things that are going on. Exactly. Right? And I yep. think, so I think those things, but, but to, the interesting thing to me is that that is a cognitive problem. Right. Right? And cognitive right. problems demand cognitive solutions, or at least I think they do. Right. Well, it's like, you know, just the, the feedback of that, of like, you know, you're just thinking about this from a resonance point of view, taking, I'll make all my singing students do this, of like taking what they think is an ooh vowel and singing something, uh, just a sustained pitch on an ooh, what they think is ooh, and yeah. then actually singing a, a really wide open ah, and actually physically in a mirror rounding their lips, going the whole way through on a pitch to a, a, an actually super, super duper round shape. Yeah. And I'm like, so what was that experience like? Well, they're like, well, it actually got a lot easier when I kept going. I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, well, okay, all right. So let's start there. Let's start there. Yeah, you start know? with that ease. Yeah. Well, that's that little thing, right? And we've known this for several hundred years, too, that when things feel good, they're often on the road to sounding better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? And to oh. being replicable. Yeah. Yes. Well, because it's funny, like I'll work with students and most of them want to be belters. And it's funny, like what I've noticed recently is whenever they do finally have something kind of click in the place, they'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Was that the right pitch that felt too low? And I'm like, no, no, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Like, that's what you want. It should feel easy because I feel yes. like that's what they're like. It's not in their head. They're like low. But I'm like, no, it felt effortless. <laughs> So yeah, the ease, nice the ease is always kind of challenging for singers. They always suspect like, that oh, they're I'm not working hard enough. Wrong. Yeah, it's too easy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you've been writing about learning in the brain for a long time before the book. Yeah. I mean, how long have you been doing the Journal of Singing column? That's been a, a minute. 
that you well, were writing that. I actually stopped that in order to finish the book. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I, that was a few, quite a few years. That was the book well. Came. The book took ten years. The book was ten, ten years. years. Yeah. Um, well, nine years and three quarters of a year, or something like something like that. Yeah. So basically, uh, as long as twenty twenty. That's okay. Go on. <laughs> yeah, the, the go long on. year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I start. I think I started officially in 2010, something like that. Wow! But but I started. What happened with the the, the <laughs> what happened with the column, which is another story I tell my students because it's just it's just something I think singers need to remember how entrepreneurial and entrepreneurship and luck match up, you know. And I remember going to a conference, I think it was in Nashville, and I was, uh, I went to a meeting that Journal Singing was holding, and, you know, like 10 people showed up. And and I I asked a question, and then afterwards I went up to Dick Jersma, whom I didn't know at all. He's the editor-in-chief, yep. and I walked up to him and I said, you know, I'm just really concerned that nobody's writing about the brain. And he said, well, really? Well, tell me about that. And I said, well, you know, the 1990s were declared the decade of the brain and it's right. almost over and nobody's been doing anything about it. And as I started talking, I got really heated. He just got this smile on his face and he's like, hmm. He goes, maybe that someone should be you. And I went, uh, and I was <laughs> sort of like, well, I don't know. Okay. So that's kind of how that, how that started. And it was, I was very conscious though at the time that I wanted to write a book. So we talked about that you know, copyright and things like that. But I recognized that it was just a golden opportunity to to do the research, right? And then write what became not the seed for the book. That's what I thought was going to happen. That's mm-hmm. not what happens. Oh. It was more of an exercise. It was practice writing. And, you know, my writing got better because, duh, practice. You write beautifully. <laughs> oh, Let me you. just say, first of all, first of all, vocal fan, the first thing I want you to know is, is that Lynn writes incredibly beautifully. Second, it's incredibly well organized. It's easy to read. It's just glowingly brilliant sentences. <laughs> also, the book is exceptionally, exceedingly well cited. I just want you to know that off the front end. Anyway, continue. Thank you for that. Well, I'm going to just let the first part of that go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can mm-hmm. go around the road with me next year, Nick. Sure. <laughs> Uh, the second part, the citations, yes, thank you for noticing that. I'm really proud of that, I have to say. Um, but also, I was very insistent on that because, you know, some of my early research, I think one of the first talks I ever gave, I had a slide that was like, studies show, you know, whiter teeth in 10 days. And so that was what was happening to brain research in the previous century. That's how we got the Mozart effect, right? That's well, how. I- all this silliness about just listening to classical music will make you brilliant. And so I was really adamant that every single thing I wrote (laughs) was going to be cited. And that, you know, that journal column for the nine years I wrote it really was that, that research base, right? And then when I went back to each section to rework it, you know, I, I upped the game considerably, but I'd already done the research, you know, in order to write those columns. So it just, it worked out beautifully. Really and one of my favorite sections of the book actually is your second chapter. I mean, it's kind of like a lit review, but like your groundwork chapter where you actually do talk about, I love the term brain scams. 
<laughs> that's not mine, but it's a great term. Isn't I know, it? but I love that. That's great. Yeah. Um, neuro neuro myths and brain scams. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and you know, I mean, because even uh, you hear things like this tossed around by still very reputable professional musicians. Yeah, yeah, and that's the part that also kind of troubled me a little bit, you know, the learning styles issue, which is not accepted by science. Um, and, you know, people get really heated when you, when you say that, but, um, and, and I don't like to, I don't like to follow that with something like, well, it's true because we, science is like art, right? It's always building on itself. It's, it's organic. It's moving forward, yes. but it's still the best system we have to put something you know, under a microscope, so to speak, and pick it apart and put it through peer review and decide, yep, this is still the best like theory we have yes. for this, right? So learning styles, no, probably not, because, you know, if, if absent frank brain disorders, most of us are remarkably similar in our cognitive abilities, but what we have is preferences, for sure, like strong ones. But then, you know, that leads to the next, it's always, why do I care? This is, my students learn this in my class. That is the overarching question. Why do I care? And I care because if I've decided that I am not a mathematical mind, then I have severely limited myself. Sure. Right? And if I, if I, as a parent, pass that on to my child and teach them from a very young age, well, darling, it's all right. You don't have to learn math because you see, you learn in pictures. What I've done is I've instilled this idea in my child that they can't grow past this preference. And we may always have those strong, I have them. You know, I know what I like and what I don't like. But I'm realizing how very limiting that was. And it was very popular in the 80s. Um, and 90s when I was raising children. So it's something I'm really aware of, you know. I well, I was, I, I remember from my 1980s uh, child, um, you know, intelligence diagnoses tests. Yeah. That yeah. I was visually impaired at my like cognitive abilities with my visual, you know, whatever wow. intelligence these. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but, it, you know, and then you develop these like neuroses of like, you know, yeah. Like, well, and then there's that issue of, is it, is it really a, um, is it a disability or is it a delay? Right. right? That is a really interesting. So, you know, when you look at something like ADD and ADHD, you know, the most interesting diagnosis and the one that made the most sense to me was that it is not a disease not a disorder it's just a, it's a maturation delay but in the same at the same time we have to realize that, that those have really strong consequences because kids with ADD are about three and a half years behind their cohort right and so you think about if you get a learner's permit at age 16 and a normally ordered brain is driving around at 16 you got a, a brain of a 12 and a half year old driving a car <laughs> and then you have it's right and then you it does explain a lot and then you think about like adolescence being that age of high risk right without thinking through the consequences because the prefrontal cortex is not well developed you know, an 18 or 19 or 20 year old is going to take those risks as, a, as an adolescent. 
But you've got, you know, an 18-year-old, an ADD person is doing that with a 14 and 15-year-old brain. So, and then those choices that those kids make have consequences. So it's just so important to to think through these things at at deeper levels and not just skip across the top of them, I think. So in the book, since we're kind of transitioning into the book now, I mean, in the book, I think you have, you hit on kind of what I see as four of the major things that we, that we hear about now as music teachers, educators, performers, whatever, that being how we process information, motor learning, performance research, let's call it, and then performance anxiety. Yeah. I mean, you know, and you kind of have, you know, those are big parts of four major chapters of the book. Um, What, what of those things do you really wish that we as thinking music education globally. Yeah. Which of those things do you really wish that we globally knew more about and could apply better yeah. to our teaching? I think a cup is such a great way of framing that question, Nick. I think um, one big one that I think uh, all teachers and performers and people who teach performers should, should, dig deep in is the difference between learning and performance Mm. because those things cognitively speaking are not only different but i've come to really think of them as almost diametrically opposed yes right and then again it's like well why do i care well because we get into trouble when we mix them up we get into the same way that in the physiology of singing i have this thing about the difference between breath control and breath support and I really dig deep on that because I'm helping my students understand that for too long we've conflated those terms as synonymous, and they aren't. <laughs> and I come up with stories that show, you know, if you've got a breathy person, ah, oh, really, and you tell them, my dear, I just need to support that tone more. If you actually use more breath support, it's gonna pour gasoline on that fire. So class, what do they need? They need more control. So this is the same thing with learning and performance. If we don't understand cognitively, they're different. The easy way of understanding it is this, that learning, I say learning is messy and dynamic, right? Dynamic means it's moving all around, right? It's really messy. (laughs) It's really wah. But eventually the body sorts itself out, especially when we're in mortar learning realm and sort of gets in a slot. And then we practice that slot and we fine tune it, right? But we're not gonna figure out, I know we're not video, but I mean, if you can can, uh, sort of picture a mime, you know, when a mime starts with the box and they orient you, they orient where we are. And it's the same thing when our bodies figure out, you know, this voice, where is it going to sit, right? Where is it going to hook in? That's learning. It's messy. It's dynamic. It can be humiliating. It can be frustrating. Sometimes your worst day is your best day in terms of learning, especially if you're trying to dislodge a bad habit, which a lot of singers, you know, really hear that. Right. Sometimes my students will get frustrated, particularly my like um, kind of uh, postgraduate or post-college yep. students who think that yep. they're, you know, who are good singers, like mm-hmm. the, you know. Or, or, but I'm 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 purposefully trying to put them in a place to put them off balance 
to yes. overcome something they still need to deal with. Good for you. And that's it, that's good. That's it is, but it's desirable difficulties. But it's uncomfortable in that moment. For oh them. yeah, it is. But this is something you know. I had students years ago when I was giving a talk on this. They said, "Do you tell your students about this?" And I was like, "Of course I do. Like you should tell them. I'm you know I'm doing this to help you. I'm this is." You know, Robert Bjork calls yeah. these desirable difficulties. So exactly. you might say that job description for a teacher is to create this, you know, obstacle course of desirable difficulties and make sure that your students can master them. And of course, that's the sweet spot in teaching too, right? If we put right. the goal too far out in front of them, they fall on their face and then they're humiliated and then they're mad yeah. at you. But if you make it too easy, that's not learning. That's, that's not. That's exactly. <laughs> and exactly. I say performance is a freeze frame of where you are at the, any moment, right? right? And if that's true, right? It's just like when I'm going to go get my headshots done. <laughs> I want that moment of click. I want my hair in the, exactly right. I want the everything lined up. I'm not messing around, right? I'm not right. experimenting anymore. I'm trying to put the, my absolute best foot forward. So that's performance. The thing that we get in, then we get into why do I care? Because if one goes into a lesson in a performance mode, then we're not going to be learning. If you have a teacher who demands that every week, we're not going to be learning because there's yes. not going to be room for messiness. There's Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> you must go to your lessons, I think, both teacher and student in a learning mode. Now, and I always have people go, I can see them in the back of the room now frowning at me. <laughs> yes, there, yes, there are times when you can certainly and you should have your students sing under performance conditions. That's what a dress rehearsal is, right? Yeah. But this is the other problem. When we have invited dress rehearsal for the opera, let's say, or the musical mm -hmm. theater, what is that? Are we re do we want our students to be in full performance mode or are we still learning? And I'm not going to presume to say what it should be, but if I'm a director, I should have a clear idea of which mode we're in and then give my performers the news. By the way, even though there are going to be 50 people in the audience, I still want you to experiment with that cross downright. I still want you to experiment with, you know, putting the sword down when you sing or whatever. You have to help people understand which mode they're operating in. But I have also come to see that it isn't just students who need to be clear about the mode. It's also uh, coaches and teachers. We need also to be very clear. So that's one thing I would hope people can take away from the book when they just learn about learning and learn how it works, but understand which mode you're in. Because when we conflate those two modes, I think we confuse our students, we confuse ourselves too, Absolutely. right? And Absolutely. there's, I, I guess, you know, you see it a lot in students who say, I'm sorry, a lot. Um, and I, I always have at least one every year who will do something and I'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I'll say, you know what? I need you to stop saying that. And of course, what do they say? I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> and you just want to sit around and say, it's not about sorry. It's about this is our learning space. So the fact that you're apologizing makes me think you're in a performance space in your head. And we oh need my to gosh. take that out. I have there. 
I just, I have, I have, there's so many thoughts. This is wonderful. This is just like, gosh, this is one of my favorite vocal fry segments we've ever done right here. Um, I have to say a couple of things. One, my own experience of when I started my voice rebuild around age, whatever I was 30, I guess when I start, no 29, I don't remember. Anyway, when I started my voice rebuild after having been wrecked and destroyed and whatever, I'll, and I've told this story in the podcast before, but I'll never forget the very first thing that Jerry said to me before we went in his office was, okay, you got nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose. So we're just going to go in and play. Nice. That's yeah. wow. And it, That's and a it, was the, example. it was the most freeing thing any voice teacher had ever said to me. Right. Um, you know, but, but also I, I don't want the vocal fam uh, going back to my previous comment. I don't want the vocal fam to think I just make students uncomfortable in lessons. <laughs> let, me, right. let me tell you specifically what happened yesterday in a lesson. I was teaching a voice teacher who is a professional and has a lovely voice, but struggles with a jaw thing that they have physically. So I had them, they, we were obviously remote. So they were in the comfort of their own home. Mm -hmm. I had them lightly bite on their finger and we did a bunch of glee glog, lick a glocka, blah, 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 tongue stuff. They're, they, they had no idea how to breathe anymore. It was as if breathing and phonation were totally irrelevant to them. They had, because they were relying on everything from their, what they were used to with their jaw and their tongue anchoring the instrument for them. Yes, yes. That's the kind of thing I was, uh, uh, that was the example I was giving vocal fam of just putting <laughs> someone in that uncomfortable thing of, oh my gosh, what, why, ah. But, but, but that, that's, let's talk about that because Please. I, I make a big point in the book, I, and I had to, to say, look, let's just stop right here and say, there is a world of difference. There's a universe of difference between a desirable difficulty. And again, this is not my, my phrase. It's Robert Bjork, who was a psychologist at Stanford, came up with this idea, right? That there, that there are, well, if we go back to, you know, what is learning? I, I would say, you know, of course, it's the, one of the most important things we do. And many psychologists say, no, 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 it is the most important thing we humans do as we navigate the world. It's how we make decisions uh, based on, you know, past experience, right? How am I going to react going forward based on what I learned in the past? So this is how we build our human experience. We call that learning. So pretty important. We can't ever save ourselves or those we love, i.e. parents, teachers, from these desirable difficulties. It's through difficulty, challenge, and master that we learn, right? Yep. And so um, I had to make a stop there because we have in music, of course, and for the people who are listening, the book is not just for singers. It's for all musicians. There we go. Thank the you one we have to think about uh, some of our wunderkinds, you know, some of our pianists and violinists who have been pushed really hard as kids, even to the point where... Um, we have abusive parents. So I had to stop and say, wait, desirable difficulties are benevolent, right? Mm -hmm. We do yes. them with warmth and human yes, love and empathy. We 100%. never shame. And so, but that doesn't mean the person isn't going to feel uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. And that is when you ask the question of what do you, what would you like people to know? If we flip that then to, there is something to this 29 to 31-year-old age group. In fact, I would say even in Los Angeles, in my private studio, that's, that's my niche. That's where I specialize. 
because I'm finding that people are getting out of their master's degree program, they're doing Aspen, they're doing Tangleworth, they're doing all the things, and then something, there's a, it's like a glass ceiling. Mm. Things should be happening for them that aren't, because generally speaking, there's a, what I call a fatal flaw. It could be anything. It could be I never learned sure. how to breathe. It could be I sing, I sing consistently out of tune at D5, which I call the no, this black was, hole, right? This is, this is literally my story yeah. because yeah. I, was, I was a 21-year-old at Santa Fe, apprenticing in there Santa Fe. There you go. Yep. And I could yep. sit high C's for weeks yep. at a time. Yep. I could not sing an F. Yes, exactly. So I, I had that exceptionally specific yes. deficiency, and then yes. that wrecked my technique. Yeah, and so you have to go back to someone who helps you build the fatal flaw or build the place, in your case, maybe as something really foundational that then fed right. into other things, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm finding that, that if you can help people understand, so, so again, like, how does, how does my third pillar fit in? Because I say the, third pill, the, the three pillars of voice science are physiology and acoustics, starting with Garcia, right? Mm -hmm. And we go into the acoustics part, which comes in the 70s via linguistics, mainly. Yep. And then we have now, I think, cognitive science, because these, the person that you're describing, that there's, there's a lot of that out there. Now, it, I don't think that it necessarily has to do with, you know, bad training or bad teaching. It's just, if there was a lot of success early, I had it too, Nick, you and I are fellow wunderkinds, so I know. <laughs> Um, it, it's not that that something went was bad or harmful. It's just sometimes we skipped some necessary foundational things that you can get away with when you're 24, 25, 26. Something happens around 29, 30, 31. Maybe it's the ossification of the cartilaginous structures in the body, right? That go, mm, you better, is this it? Because we're going to solidify now. So you better, <laughs> right? you better know what your technique is. Um, and I'm working with a lot of these people right now. It's been really interesting to bring this third pillar in because I don't want them to get discouraged. I have to find a way to give them the desirable difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. so, that right don't, yeah. so they don't shy away and go, I, this is too hard. It's too hard. Right. right. Because if they do that, they're never going to have their full potential of their of instrument. Course. But on the flip side, you know, we can take some things like from motor learning. So here's another one. Um, it takes about 36 hours to change a habit. Now that's astounding. Yeah. It doesn't take six months to change a bad vocal habit. Really, it takes about 36 hours to dislodge it. It may take another five or six months to practice the right or the more efficient way to get what you want. Right. But it doesn't take very long to destabilize. Right. And so I, I um, this answering this student asked me years ago, do you tell your students this? I'm like, heck yes, I do, because I want them to understand. I'm working with somebody right now that I had this conversation with. I said, look, let me tell you what's going to happen here. <laughs> And it did. It was already showing up in her journal entries to me that, you know, things are feeling really funky. And it's because when you destabilize, when you unlearn something, yeah. especially in the motor realm, when you go back to get it, like the old coat that always fits, it's like, oh, my gosh, where is it? It's not there anymore. Yeah. It's your blankie, right? So your blankie's gone. The way, like you said, if you've been anchoring yeah. your voice with the with your tongue root and we do all this work, we can dislodge that pretty quickly. But then they come back and they go, 
But I feel like I'm saying like this all the time and I can't, right, because we've taken away your blankie. Yeah. We've taken away this very tactile response that you had to certain notes feeling certain ways when you plunge your tongue halfway down your throat. And, you know, your larynx was okay with that when you were 22. It's not going to be okay with that when you're 29 or 30. It's going to start talking to you. And it's going to start saying things like, we're singing out of tune. Uh -huh. <laughs> right? Or we're going to develop the dreaded wobble or whatever it is. So you have to help people understand that even though they know they have to change these habits, there is going to be some discomfort along the way. And at a certain point, they will not be able to go back to the old habit because yep. it will have been destabilized. And so what does that mean? You're going to go through a period of like bad hair days, like over and over and over again. And you're going to start going, should I just like quit this and go to law school? Um, you have to answer that for yourself. Yes. But I think that's where we have to get into like the joy of learning. The joy right. of learning. Not the, not the performance part. That ha that's very small in comparison to the learning that we do, right? The practicing that we do. And I guess I always loved to practice too. I really did. I really loved practicing and not just singing, but I loved yeah. experimenting with sounds and trying to figure things out and, and thinking about them. And I didn't mind so much if I sounded crappy. I didn't really bother me. I was just well, interested. You know, that's actually one of the things I love about, because I just, I just, because of acoustics and just because of my own singing and whatever, I actually adore working with students in any kind of transitional area of the voice. It's like one of my favorite things ever. And at first for some people it's frustrating, but I'm like, listen, the human singing voice has more options in passaggio than it does anywhere else in its entire range. Oh, that's a cool you've got, idea. You've got more yeah. options there than anywhere else. That's a really um, cool idea. Uh, yeah. so a, a, anyway, I just, I, I love also as a, from a putting people in kind of a, a learning mode, maybe don't play them a filtered recording of themselves right before their graduate recital. Yeah. That's not what you should do. Just vocal family. So that they yes. have a complete like identity What you crisis? should not do is take a Voce Vista and record them and then filter out what you know is the problem. Don't do that. Don't do that well, right before the let's, graduate Let's recital. look what that is, though. That is, that's my rule, is don't teach before a performance. Right. That's what that is, right? We so, didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't yeah. have to. It was you an innocent to. mistake. Yeah, we, we had no clue <laughs> the, the repercussions of that just moment. Let's, just Haha, let's do this. And then it was. But, but see, why is that? Because learning is destabilizing. It was very. That's why. Learning is destabilizing and you don't want to destabilize yourself or you don't want to destabilize your students right before a performance. So, you know, sometimes people ask me like, well, how long? Some people it's two weeks. There are some people for whom you got to stop two weeks before a big event and your job is just performance uh, grooming almost, right? Yeah. You're not trying to teach because I, that's true I stopped teaching the last two weeks of the semester. I don't teach. I did that with my students the last few weeks. I've been like, hey, we're just going to run wrong. your song. We're going to get comfortable like so that you could do this in your sleep. Yeah, that's great. That's That's actually... That's, that's why I think it's so important for us to really look at what we know about how people learn. And that's what cognitive science is. It's not neuroscience, by the way. So people who are 
Look in the bio of my book, you're not going to find the brain sliced up like a side of beef because I was Perfect. not interested in, you know, in the neuroscience. I'm interested in how the thing works. Where can people get the book? Oh, well, uh, you can order it from Roman and Littlefield, my publisher, and it's also on Amazon, of course, like everything else. Like um, everything and it's, else. It's, um, it's also in ebook form format. Oh, it is. I have, I have my lovely paper version. Oh, look at you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, I wanted to ask you about one more thing um, <laughs> on the voice side of things. Um, uh we're excited that here in a few months, uh, you and I were both in Los Angeles in 2018 for VoicePed Summit 2. Yep. Um, I, I think you all are doing some kind of panel for Voice Foundation this spring, maybe about it? Yes, yes. June 6th, um, Alan Henderson and Kari Reagan and Ian Howell and Amelia Rollins and myself are talking uh, just about kind of where we go from here um, mm -hmm. in terms of the field. Right. So that's what those pedagogy summits were about was right. what, what do we need to know and why I introduced this officially as the third pillar, because, you know, we all have known for a long time. We've got to know the physiology. Right. Got to know how the thing works. Sure. We've got to know the acoustic stuff, which is so important. That's the hard part. But yes, we have to learn it. <laughs> yes, we can do we this. Have, we have plenty of back catalog about that. Yes, we yeah. do. Yeah. But then there's this third piece that I think we have to understand how people learn, particularly if we're going to teach. We just yeah. have to understand how that's all put together. I've been uh, trying to tell my graduate students this in PED and even the undergrads, but particularly the grads, I'm like, look, this is the brain stuff is what you're going to need to know coming up in, for the next 50 years. This is going to be the thing. I think so. I've, I've thought so for a really long time, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and again, we have in the science, you know, so many difficult, especially, you know, the physics of sound. Are you kidding me? I mean, it, it's, it's tough. It was tough as an undergraduate. I remember learning the harmonic series and going, what? <laughs> yeah. And I think we miss an opportunity to help people understand these really complex things if we don't also put the wonder in them that isn't this cool, that isn't, yes. can you believe how mind-blowing and wonderfully amazing your body is 100%. and the universe is? I think that's that that piece gets missed and we it can come in through the psychology it can come in because when you open cognitive science which of course is a huge field which huge. encompasses psychology then you have to start talking about things like emotion and empathy and that brings it squarely to our home as artists that brings it squarely to why we why we care and i think also how we interact with other people not yeah. just people in audiences, but how we interact with our students. How do we interact as a colleague? You yes. know, this, this came up in the PED summits, right? Yep. Of, Gee, what about that? How do I interact with my colleagues when I'm in a department? How do I move to a small town and open a voice studio, right? How do I yep. meet other people? Um, my grad students now are moving all over the place. And how do I move into a community and yep. find out what's going on in an empathetic way? a non-threatening way. Yeah. And right. uh, Vocal Fam, we'll have a position paper out from Vocal Ped Summit 2 in the fall sometime in journalism. Yes, it's in the first. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yes, Dick Scherzma fortunately was able to get it in um, fast-tracked. 
So uh, it's coming in the first uh, volume, which is always September. September. Oh. It is September, October. Okay, perfect. September of this year, yeah. Perfect. So if, yeah. if you're interested in some of the things that we kind of talked about and then that Thank goodness. Thank you to our writing team led by yes. Amelia Rawlings and Catherine Osborne. Um, uh, thank you to the whole writing team, but, but, um, and Pernus glad he wasn't on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a heavy lift. It really was a heavy lift, especially the last month. Yeah. They really, and of course it came at the end of the semester Terrible. <laughs> for everyone yeah. when right. they were trying to, you know, I know Amelia and Catherine both had students giving recitals and you, we all know the drill, it's but, just but it was done and um, it's a really, really excellent paper that I think puts us in a good position now to really now dig down and start um doing a more detailed look at curricula and things like that. Well, and I know that that's one of Alan's big pushes um, is, you know, we'd love to see voice ped in all voice curriculums in one form or another, even for a, for a BA in, in major, for a BM major, for a BME major, for, you know, we'd, we'd really like to see that incorporated in. I know Josh and Yvonne and I are, are, are applying to present something sort of on this kind of thing um, with, with a bent toward this as, as well. So, I mean, you know, look, look, there's, there's, listen, vocal fam, the pedagogy field is healthy. There's a lot of great people and, and doing some really great, great stuff. Uh, Lynn, b b of course, we want to transition here at the end. Um, do you have a, what during the pandemic outside of your voice wonderment has been bringing you joy during the pandemic? Anything from guard? We've had a lot of gardeners this season. Yes. You know, we, we have, of course, had our typical Star Wars fans who fit yeah. very well in with us. But um, <laughs> but uh, what what have you been enjoying during the pandemic? Oh, wow. That's true. Gardening and sourdough bread, right? Um, oh, that's, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another. That's another Who was thing. not making their own bread? Who was not making their own bread? Um, I was not making my own bread. I well, you know, I, mm, what is bringing me joy? I, I have something interesting probably to say about that. Um, walking. That's right. what I discovered. Wow. Duh. But I discovered that... Um, you know, there was a moment, I, 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 I should probably go back and say I'm very, very fortunate to live in, in LA. I just lucked out and we found this home, this little cute little Pasadena bungalow deal at the bottom of a canyon. And we have no neighbors on all sides, basically. What? Us and the coyotes, yeah. Except I'm like nine minutes from Dorothy Chandler Pavilion downtown. So. Oh I just lucked out. So my first joy was my hot tub. Um, oh. We just decided if we're going to be stuck at home. So we got one of the, we got a cedar hot, two person hot tub. Oh my um, that's phenomenal. Going out there at night with my glass of wine and the stars is pretty remarkable. And the coyotes, of course. But walking, I just discovered that, um, I go twice a day and I have this loop and it's quiet and I can think and I really discovered the importance of all the stuff I've been studying about default mode, which is another really important thing people need, need to learn about how your brain works. So um, we, we're out of time, so you have to buy the book and default mode, which is where your brain is most of the time. My brain right now is not in default mode because I'm hyper-focusing talking to you guys, but yeah. 
When you're just doing about anything else, that's where you are most of the time. And you need that time. It's almost like this, the waking version of sleep for your brain to parse and order and organize all the stuff that's going on in there. And I just found early on in the pandemic, there was a moment, I remember being out walking this beautiful time of day, uh, late afternoon, and it was just like, it was like liqueur. It was just exactly what I needed. So that's been my joy to discover, not only just walking, but the the meditative quality, especially if you don't take your ear pods with you, don't <laughs> listen to anything, just go and let your mind mm. reorder and refresh. It was just a huge revelation to me. And I think a lot of a lot of what I experienced in the pandemic was just those moments of peace of being able to stop rushing around because we couldn't we couldn't yeah. go anywhere um and you know i i had my share of loss and pain um not a lot happy to say my mother's 92 and still here lord lover um she was an early mask maker she's taking him to the hospital Amazing. but i know but you know it i i think it has been a it's been a a time when people were able to just breathe and stop and take stock of where they are in their lives. And that's been yeah. my joy, honestly, to be able to just do that and go walking a couple of times a day and sort. That's, that's it. I mean, I do gardening, that. yes, cooking. Yes. I do that on my runs. So I very much relate yeah. to that. I mean, I very yeah. much, you know, and yeah. you know, so down. many of my, so many of my students, and I've said this on the podcast before, but so many of my students during the pandemic who are not in college right now, the, the, the last year has been so clarifying for them. Mm-hmm. Like just ha- being able to stop for a second yes. and, and, and just reevaluate what do I really want out of life moving forward here out of this? Yeah, I actually want to say something about that, about singing in particular, because I wrote an article last year, and it was supposed to be my presentation for the Nats conference that went Um, for the first one, right, that went online in Knoxville. I I don't even remember what I was going to do, but I changed it at the last minute, and it's called Cognition and Corona, because I, again, I thought... You know, there are a lot of oh, lot I remember. problems yes. yeah, people yes. are having, but it was all focused on tech. It was like, what do I use and how do I make Zoom sound good? And, and I thought, you know, we're missing the bigger picture here, which is how, we're going to have to change how we think. Not just what we do or what mics we use, but we're going to have to change the way we think about this whole thing. And that worked, at least in my studio. And I found my students, as you say, not only reevaluating, but reowning, you know, yeah. reowning what you do and why you do it. Because, you know, Nick, I mean, the thing, the thing that faces all young singers when they're out of school is you still have to practice every day. And there's no <laughs> rehearsal that you got, right? There's nothing there that's telling you what you have to do. You have to make your own schedule, just like you have to make your own exercise schedule. So I found my students really, when, when I presented it to them that way, they were able to really think things through in a different way. And we, I set up a completely different learning paradigm in my studio for a virtual world. And mm-hmm. it's been brilliant. It's been wonderful for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's just been, it's been a, it's been a very interesting time. And, and like I've said all year, there have been so many good things along with all the terrible, horrible things. 
Um, and so it's, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a couple of things before Lynn, thank you so much. This has just been, this has been, this is, gosh, this was just, this was deep and rich and Sarah, wasn't this great? It was chocolate. Yeah. Chocolate. Yes. This was, gosh, go buy the book, The Musician's Mind by Lynn Helding, Vocal Fam, available at Amazon or through the publisher's website. Um, wow. This was, this was a breath of fresh air today. Uh, mm-hmm. Vocal Fam, a couple of things for Sarah, Sarah and me. We, uh, this is sort of our unofficial end of season four, but this True. is not the season four finale. Yeah. Sarah and I promise we are going to do a full Loki review in July, right? We promise. So pumped. We and promise, Black Widow. We'll, we'll slip it in there. We promise we are going to do a full Loki review in July. We promise that we're going to do a Black Widow episode, right? Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Okay. And and I promise that if, if and this is an if because we, we don't have a full schedule yet. If Comic-Con has a big slate and we get big stuff, we may oh. go back and cover that. Yeah. Like, for example. You never know what we might If we to. get Fantastic Four casting information. Okay, it, we'll be here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll be here for it. Uh, but listen, also, as a season five teaser, we've got great guests lined up for, for next fall mm-hmm. already. Carrie Obert's going to come on with us. Mm-hmm. Ken is going to come back to talk about Kinesthetic Voice Ped 2. Um, I mean, it's the it's a it's a great list that we already. I want to I want to go back and do and bring Kayla and Yvonne back on. Maybe have Heidi Moss join us to do a Treble Range Extremes, Extremes. episode. We did Middle Edition. Voice last year. I want to do Extremes. Um, so I mean, we got we got lots of stuff already lined up for fall. The fall season is already looking like both packed and wonderful, right, Sarah? Yeah, it's going to be yeah. a blast. So lots of great stuff, Lynn. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. Oh, thank yes. you for having me. It was wonderful talking. All right, vocal. Sarah, Amazing. breakfast. Sarah, breakfast. It's really sad today. I actually just had like one of those little baby bell cheeses. That was it. That was it? I told oh. you it was really sad. <laughs> this is it as sad, sad as the day you dropped the chocolate chip muffins in the oven. <laughs> it was a sad day. <laughs> oh, my. Oh. oh. I told you it was sad. I don't know. I don't know why. All right. Sarah, good luck with your recital. Thanks. Recital weekend. I was going to um, say, not my recital vocal for our world hey vocal fam if you happen to be in mississippi and you want to come see perna dance that should be enticing enough i wish i want to come to mississippi so badly now june 4th and 5th at mississippi's professional theater new stage theater in jackson uh i'll be doing part of a i'll be doing a cabaret reopening performance literally trying to figure out how i could make that happen uh if you want to see perna dance gosh that should be enough either to horrify you or to maybe entice you enough to come and laugh um anyway all right vocal fam we are out peace